Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. A little different this morning, right? But I think it's wonderful. I think it's good when we can change things up just a little bit. But knowing just coming into these songs this morning, I was just thinking, you know, it could go many different ways. But when you allow God to just come in and speak to your heart, wonderful things can happen. And that's kind of how I feel like this morning. Moving along in Romans, if you'll open up your Bibles, Romans chapter 6, we'll be going through verses 8 through 14 this morning. And we've been talking a lot about sin and how sin plays into our life, how we sometimes succumb to that sin and other times when we're able to get away from that sin. And we know that we can through our Lord Jesus Christ because he's already paid for that sin. And so it's going to go in a little bit about how we become alive to God. How do we become alive? We know that we're supposed to die in Christ, but we become alive in God in that process. And so Paul started his explanation of the believer's death to sin by helping us understand more of the significance of the historical facts of Christ's death, okay? And so, talks about his death, we talk about his burial, and we also talk about his resurrection. And we learned that the true believer has been baptized into Christ, and therefore, we are united to Christ, And we are a participant in that experience of Christ. Thus, the believer has died. He's been buried. And then he's also been raised again, not by our own, but with him. We are raised with him. And when Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross 2,000 years ago, not only was his blood shed for your salvation, but his body was broken for your deliverance. It was broken for your deliverance. There we are two elements in communion. He shed, his shed blood grants us the forgiveness of our sins. And while his broken body provides freedom from that sin... When Jesus Christ was crucified, our sinful nature was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be destroyed. It's not something that's going to be revisited. It is something that is completely destroyed. It does not exist any longer. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, our old sinful nature died. And in that process, our new nature rose with him when he was raised from the dead. Now, when the body of Christ was being broken physically, our sinful nature was being broken in the same way. How can this be? Well, it should be beyond us. It's not something that we can fully understand. Why? Because God reveals that through our walk with him. 
God reveals that to the individual desperately seeking for those answers. God always comes through. Maybe not be in the time that we like, or the place, or the hour, but God comes through. He always speaks to us when we need him to. And just like this wireless mic that I'm wearing, (laughs) I don't quite understand exactly how that works. Because it used to be we only had wires. But now we have wireless mics. Well, how does that work? Well, there's a lot of things that go into that process. But we know most of us put on these things and we say, okay, it's just going to work, right? That's how we look at things. And though we don't fully understand the death and resurrection of Christ, and I've tied this into the reality that we have found that when I apply it by faith, it works wondrously. We believe things by faith. I am faithful that this thing is going to work. Now, I'm, no, now that I've said that, it's probably going to break on me, right? That's how things work around here. But it's the same thing when we believe in Christ. It's not something that it's um, a step-by-step process or a manual that tells you how to do this. Faith is something that we acquire. It is something that we garner through our relationship and walk with Christ. So whenever God declares a truth, know this. When he declares a truth, Satan is right there to deny it. Satan will be right there tonight saying, get real. How can that be? Just like some people who are not really fond of technology and they see the things and how they work, they're like, get real. How is that really working, right? What's the process here? Well, when Satan says that, he says at that point that we must decide whether we believe in God or do we believe what Satan denies. And before we move forward into that this morning, we need to look at verses 6 and 7 again. So go back a couple verses to verses 6 and 7. And Paul, who was ever practical when, even when he was being theological, outlines three specific results of this divine transaction on our behalf. In verse 6 says, Knowing this, this our old man was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be made powerless, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now the word translated destroyed here or, or powerless is kartageo um, in Greek. Cartageo does not mean annihilated. It means it's rendered inactive or it's paralyzed. Okay? Now, our old sin nature is a quadriplegic, if you will, if you want to put it in those terms. He's paralyzed from the neck down. This old man, our sin, is paralyzed from the neck down. Now, we understand that the head up is very powerful. It's very persuasive. We know that Satan will come in and try to intimidate us. He'll say things like, you have no choice. You got to give in. You got to gossip. You got to overindulge. You got to take another look. You got to tell that lie. I've got power over you. But we know that's all false. We know it's false. It's his last ditch effort to get into our lives and get us away from the glory that is Christ. 
And now the old man, which is the sinful nature, which the Bible says has been crucified and thought dead, it is still operative, okay? It may be dead, but it won't lie down. The old man, or our sin nature, is the pre-regenerate person here. Christians can refer to this as their lives as A.D. and B.C., the, the old man is the regenerate man raised in Christ. The person you were before Christ has been judged, condemned, sentenced, executed, buried, and finished with forever. Amen? The new man should be the one that lives, not the old man. We spend years going through psychoanalysis and trying to get victory. As Christians, we're trying to get victory. But Paul would say victory is not a matter of positive thinking or imaging. It is a matter of appropriating what happened at Calvary 2,000 years ago. There's our victory. The death and resurrection of Christ is the point where victory begins. Notice also that there has been a powerful impact on the body of sin which verse 6 says has been done away with. It does not exist anymore. The human body, which while not sinful of itself, is very, very, very clearly the instrument of our sin. Paul states that this body, which is so susceptible to sin's domination, before with Christ is through him, has also been placed in a position where sin's domination no longer can be the norm. It's no longer normal to live that kind of lifestyle. And this leads to the third practical fact in verse 6, namely, that believers should no longer serve sin. Now that the man of old, which previously controlled the physical body, has been dealt with in Christ we now should recognize that he is no longer at the mercy of sin. So in other words, he is freed from that sin. He is justified from that sin. And as we have seen previously, justification has a legal connotation. But in the same way that a man who has been exonerated in a court of law has also the freedom to walk out of that court and take a cab to his home. So... The justified believer, in addition to his technical justification, has the practical freedom to walk away from the dominating power of sin. See where I'm getting there? It's the same comparison here. Now, to begin to understand this, we need to see how far those who believe they are saved... saved to live as they wish they have strayed from the truth, all of this all-encompassing gospel. First of all, we need to talk about sin and death's domain. In verse 8 through 10, the emphasis of the believer's union with Christ continues here. Verses 8 to 11 endeavor to teach that what is true for Christ is also true for us believers. Verse 8 begins the reason for the believer's future bodily resurrection as it comes into view here. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we should also live with him. So we, in some way, share in Jesus' death 
and resurrection. If in his death he died to sin, then we in him also died to sin. If his death secures our deliverance from the penalty and power of sin, and if we believe and appropriate it in faith, then we should also live with him. To live with Christ includes two concepts here. One is the association with him, and then also the conformity to him. If we are deriving our spiritual life from the result, then we have to live our life like his. We have to be living that life. We have to walk what we walk and talk what we talk. We believe means that believers live by their faith in God's redemption of the world in Jesus Christ. The wonder and reality of Christ's death and resurrection can be realized only by faith and a faith relationship with him who died, who lives, and we know that Christ is Lord. He is the author and finisher of salvation. Verse 9 guarantees us that Christ was master over death even when dying. In other words, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. He is alive. And he will continue to be alive. Death is no longer master over him. And death is no longer master over us. Our faith is hitched to the cart of Christ's resurrection. If we are to live in Christ, we must be with Christ. Since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Even death is not the master of him who is life. Our faith is grounded in the risen Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the anchor of faith and the assurance of our future resurrection, like I read earlier this morning. Christ's resurrection means that death no longer has mastery over him. And if our life is in him, then death is no longer our master either. Jesus lived in perfect obedience to the eternal God. And because he lived for God, he did not live for self, much like we do. He did not live for self. Because he did not live for self, he knew no sin. He knew no sin. And because he knew no sin, death could not master him. The cross swallows up the grave. Death can claim neither Christ again nor those who through faith place their lives in his account. Going back to chapter 1. We have an account with Christ. And with that account, we are to grow in his likeness. Faith in the resurrected Christ is not a pipe dream. Know that. Faith in the resurrected Christ is no pipe dream. But in history, the hope of the ages, the clarion truth that in Jesus, eternity beams brightly into the darkness and despair of human history. He is the answer. Why are things so dark? Is because we're not allowing his light to shine. 
People are no longer willing to sacrifice like he did for us. Light cannot shine, but knowing our Lord Jesus Christ, he finds a way anyway. Verse 10 teaches us that the death and resurrection of Christ resound like a trumpet blast through the corridors of time once and for all. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 says, For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So what does it mean that he died to sin once and for all? Well, when Christ entered the world, he came from the glory of heaven sinless. He came sinless, spotless, undefiled. And he was separate from sin. And immediately entering uh, human society, he was confronted on every hand by Satan. He was confronted multiple times. And Satan was very good about wanting to show his power. And he wanted to know Jesus that he was there. And for 33 years, he lived among the carnage and wreckage of sin. And when he went to the cross, he assumed our sin and bore the wrath of God all for our sin. He took it with him. And in fact, the Bible says that the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Having come from an environment where sinlessness was a normative to a situation where it was very pervasive, it comes as no surprise to us that he cried from the cross. He cried from the cross. And at the end of his ministry, he cried, it is finished. It is finished. And then he bowed his head and dismissed his spirit. Christ's sacrifice for sin was sufficient and it was final. He doesn't need to die for sin again. And the nightmare of sin, the horrors of death and hell, the lethal tyranny of sin's hold on people had been dealt with as well. And he could go to the grave anticipating that his resurrection would bring joy and delight. In that same way, we as believers can die this way too. We can die knowing that our service to God was forefront. And when we walk and talk with him and we hear those words, good and faithful servant, we know without a shadow of a doubt that we have done our service to him. And in the same way, as we are united to Christ, we can exult in the fact that all that must be done, all the sin that we must deal with, we can do that through Christ. And they too can cry, we are finished. It is finished. And it's not more of a cry, but it should be more like a sigh of relief knowing that we have a relationship to him. And because for them, the nightmare of constant sin is over and the tyranny of uncontrollable and unconquerable sin is broken. For in the same way that Christ did not stay dead, but rose to a newness of life, we could also be lived unto the Father in the same way. We are raised too. We are raised to walk in a newness of life. Not our life, but his life. Now, it might be difficult to believe, but verse 11 here is the first command in the entire book of Romans. 
It is the first command in the entire book of Romans. So even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So, first the believer must do some reckoning here. The word reckon in this verse doesn't mean what it means today, though. As in, well, I'll reckon I'll mosey on down to the barn. Doesn't mean the same thing. No, the word count also is considered to be a mental calculation. It's actually an accounting term for calculating and computing. But in Paul's day, it was used when someone was putting something into your account. In other words, count yourselves. It's a um, present imperative and urging us to constantly view ourselves in this light. It means adding up the figures and come to a, a final conclusion, if you will. We are commanded to count two things to be true. First, we are dead to sin. Also, we are alive to God. And these truths must be considered carefully and continually. It is not a one-shot deal. It is a continual process. That's why this is a uh, marathon, not a sprint. Understand? They're already true, But we also know that we must be appropriated and applied. These concepts must be appropriated and applied in order for them to be activated in our lives. The idea is that we are to keep on counting ourselves to be what God says we are putting the truths of the book of Romans into the calculator in our minds. If indeed it's true that your sin nature was crucified with Christ on the cross then you are no longer in bondage to it. In other words, God commands us to come to the conclusion based on this fact. If you were hungry, I might tell you to go down to McDonald's, right? But if you had no money, you might say, I can't, I'm bankrupt. Then I might say, well, yes, you can. I put money in your account, Here's the deposit slip signed by the teller and stamped with the bank seal. But if you said, I don't believe that, your failure to reckon it to be so, to add it up to it into your account, and to appropriate what I did on your behalf, you would still be poor and hungry. But notice this. But the reason for your poverty and hunger would not be due to my failure to provide for you. It would be due to your failure to believe what I did for you. And the same is true concerning appropriation. Jesus paid the entire penalty for our sin and paralyzed our sin nature. Notice I said paralyzed. We still have those prevailing thoughts of should I do this? Should I not do this? It is paralyzed from the neck down. It doesn't have legs to stand on, if you will. But when you hear those voices, and it creeps in, we have to not succumb to that temptation. So let's flesh this out a little bit. When you're faced with a temptation, respond to it as a dead man would. I know that sounds kind of funny. Respond to it like a dead man would. You might want to say these words out loud. I count myself crucified with Christ, and therefore I am dead to this sin, and I am alive to God. 
I consult my account and know that what Jesus has accomplished has been credited to me. I appropriate it and I apply it to this situation. We need to talk theology to ourselves. And some of you are like, I don't know that. I don't know what theology is. That's a big word. What does that mean? Well, check this out. Augustine, who was converted as an adult, was approached by the woman who had been his mistress. He turned and walked away quickly, but she called out after him, Augustine, it's me. It's me. And quickening his pace, this new believer called back over his shoulder, Yes, I know, but it's no longer me. That's what we need to do with sin. Sin's going to call for us. It's going to say, Hey, Chris, come on back over here. It's me. Let's continue to do what we do. But I've got to be able to look over my shoulder and say, I can't because I'm not who you think I am. I'm alive in God. I am dead to that sin. The believer must understand that in Christ, he is no longer totally at the mercy of sin. But we are alive to all the power and life of God himself. There's a great difference between realizing that on the cross, Christ was crucified for me, and on the cross, I was crucified with Christ. One brings salvation from sin's condemnation, and the other brings deliverance from sin's power. Two simple concepts here. The life that was in Jesus is made by ours by means of his cross. And when we make the decision to identify with him, the difficulties don't go away. The difficulties become easier to handle. We must decide that we do not want it in our life. We must decide sin does not have any power over me. We have to allow Christ to (laughs) do what he's already said he's going to do and what he's already done. He's already paid for that sin. He doesn't have to do it again. He doesn't have to die again. But we, as God has commanded in verse 11, we must recognize this and know that we are dead to that sin as well and we are alive in him. Verses 12 and 13 hum with energy and urgency as believers are called to action here. Verses 12 and 13. The cross and resurrection of Jesus have broken the power of sin and believers at last stand before a real choice. We now can choose not to sin. After counting on what Christ has done, we can stop allowing sin to reign supreme in our lives. We are given that power. And when this is understood, the believer must make some decisions here. He can either basically continue in the life that he's already been leading, or we can allow Christ to live in us, through us, and around us. And allow him to do what he said he's going to do. Now, I've always said that being a Christian is hard. And I've always said that if, you're not, if it's not hard for you, then you're doing it wrong. But when we allow Christ to do what he says he's going to do, watch around you. Watch the miracle. 
Watch what people will respond to. When this is understood, the believer makes that decision. And the one found in verse 12 is the command not to let sin use our earthly bodies. We're always told that this is just the vessel. But who's controlling that vessel? Who's controlling that vessel? Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Therefore, here, indicates that as a consequence of our calculating and counting, we stop allowing sin to rule as king in our lives. That's what the word reign means. That's what the word reign means. We've been transferred to a new kingdom so that we no longer allow sin to have supremacy in our lives. Whenever a believer obeys, the passions of his body succumbs to temptation. He sins. But he is not obligated to succumb, and he does not have to sin. The Puritans used to say, God does not take away our ability to sin. He gives us the power not to sin. If television sets were made without on and off buttons and we were chained to our seats in front of them, and our eyes were held open by mechanical means, we would have no option but to watch everything on that screen. But we're not. We are not chained to that. We all have the option to watch it or not watch it. It requires a choice to turn off that television. In Christ, we have been given the off switch if you may. We have the off switch. We have the ability to say no and the instructions of how to do it. Gentlemen, we'd have to go in our drawers and pull it out because we don't look at those manuals anymore, do we? But we have the manual. We have the manual. It is here. And we have the off switch. How convenient. But how many of us are, oh, well, you know, I don't see it. I don't see it. You see, sin is viewed as an armed tyrant who exacts obedience. But Christ has stopped sin's drive in its tracks. Because of Christ's resurrection and assurance that God is for them, believers are now free. They are not to return abjectly to their gangster lord. Paul calls us to arms here. Christians must not allow sin to reign unopposed in their lives. The reason we must be vigilant about sin is because if we're not, it will become supreme in your life. Jesus put it this way in John 8, 34. I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. That's so true. Don't excuse sin. Refuse it. Don't dabble in it because sin will always take you further than you were planning to go. And it will keep you longer than you were planning to stay. Sin entices and then it enslaves. It entices and then it enslaves. And some of us are way too cozy with sin. Sure, we're saved and frankly not much has happened since our conversion. Instead of fighting, we often fall. It reminds me of a little boy who fell out of a bed one night. And his mom heard him crying, 
ran into his bedroom, picked him up and put him back in his bed. And after tucking him in, she asked, Honey, why did you fall out of the bed? To which he answered, Well, I guess I stayed too close where I got in. It is time that we stop so we can start knowing, so we can start growing, so we can start showing. The appeal to the Romans in verse 13 is that since Christians are dead to sin, let them live to God. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present ourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. The Bible says it both negatively and positively. Negatively, it says, do not offer. But then positively, it says, but rather offer. To offer means to place at someone's disposal and to be able to use that for presenting offerings and sacrifice and therefore has the idea of yielding or relinquishing one's grip. And what he's talking about specifically He's talking about our body parts. He's talking about our body parts. Instead of yielding to our yearnings, we must yield every part of our body to Christ. The word instruments or members in some versions means weapons. We are a weapon of mass destruction. Did you know that? We really are. And that means our body parts are either weapons of wickedness or they are weapons of worshipful warfare. We're in a battle. We are in a war. And because there's a certain gravity of depravity here, and it pulls us down spiritually, it's critical that we offer our bodies to Christ. If we don't, we end up serving sin. The tenses of the verb offer are themselves instructive and might be paraphrased. Do not continue offering yourselves to sin, but... Offer yourselves up once and for all for God. Once and for all. That means don't go back into the sin nature. It means you've been freed for that. You, don't, you shouldn't even have the choice. It shouldn't be a choice in your head. If you have been saved, this no longer appeals to you. So God is saying, offer your body as a sacrifice. Once and for all. Much like Christ did on the cross. Paul becomes even more specific when he gives instructions concerning individual members of the body. We sin when we yield or present our tongue to say the wrong word, or hand when we take something that does not belong to us, our sexual organs when we commit adultery, our minds when we harbor uncharitable thoughts. When we take sin seriously... We begin to see how sin cannot operate in our bodies without or giving over a particular member of the body for a specific sin. In other words, if the believer is adequately aware of this, he can begin to say no to any and all temptation. Not only in a general sense, but in the very specific sense of refusing to present that member necessary to commit that sin. It is important to recognize that Paul gives both a positive and a negative side of this action. 
When we refuse to present the member of an instrument of unrighteousness, we may feel that we are left in a vacuum. So we need to remember to present the newly redundant member to an action that will further the work of God. In other words, instead of doing that action that doesn't, or it isn't right or is unrighteous, we counter that by doing something that is righteous. We don't just say no and then hide in a corner and hope it doesn't come back again. There has to be an action on our part. In order to get away from sin, we need to do things that do not pertain to sin. There has to be an action. After appreciation and appropriation, we need application. Appropriation, appreciation, and now application. And when I really understand what Jesus did for me as he yielded his body on the cross, I need to apply it to my daily life. So, here I am walking in the store, and there's a nice shiny wrapper with a candy bar that I really like. And on the wrapper it says 15% larger. Sounds good, right? And it's one of my favorites, and it's covered in all the stuff that I like. And immediately, the old man within me says, you got to give in. There's 15% more on this thing. You should get it. Be reasonable. It's a good buy. It's the same price for 15% more. Why wouldn't you buy it? So my stomach begins to growl. My mouth starts to salivate. My old sin nature demands to be satisfied. You're right. I concede. I really don't have much power over this particular temptation. So I buy the candy. You take a bite. And lo and behold, guess what? You have feelings of guilt, right? You have the feelings of guilt. Depression sets in. And I'll say, oh, sign me up for a support group. That's what I need. But that's not true. You see, the word says if we appreciate, appropriate, and apply, we never have to give in to whatever that candy bar we're dealing with at any given moment. We have power over it. It's not a 12-step program. It's not a one-step solution called the cross. For not only did the blood of Jesus cleanse me from the penalty of sin... But his broken body sets me free from the pollution of sin. But his broken body sets me free from that. It sets me free from that. And when I choose to walk in that fact, I can find myself saying, I'm not going to buy you, candy bar. I'm not going to buy you. And as I walk down the aisle towards the bananas or the fruit, a miracle has happened, right? Following the radical information that we are free from the power and penalty of sin, and on the heels of Paul's exhortation to simple appropriation, we have the practical application. When we are about to give in to gossip, lose our temper, fall prey to jealousy, say, Lord, I understand that I no longer have to succumb to this because the old man of sin was crucified. I reckon it to be, and so I can appropriate it even now. 
The essence of the new life is not a concept or a feeling of detachment from reality. But it is a trumpet call to activate combat in the cause of righteousness against evil. It is going to be a battle. Now, I know most of you are battling more than just candy bars. But it is the same concept. We have to say no to temptation. We have to say no to sin. And we have to be of the cognizance that we know that we are free from that sin. And we have our lives in Christ to fall upon. The parts of our body can be used for rottenness or for righteousness. Spiritual victory won't happen until our yielding becomes very particular and very personal. We must ask ourselves, have we yielded every part of our body to the Lord? How about our minds? What thoughts are flying around your head right now besides what's for lunch? What's your prevailing thoughts right now? Colossians 3, 3 verses 2 and 3 says, Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. Now, I'm well aware you're not focused on my sermon all the way. But it's just like anything. When we don't try, nothing happens. When we do try, something could happen. And that's what he's saying here. How about our hearts? What do you value the most? On what are your emotions centered? Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. So who can understand it? How about our eyes? Have you been looking at things you should not be looking at? Men, yield your eyes to the Lord by making a covenant like Job did in Job 31.1. I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. And there are many other ways that we use our eyes in an unrighteous manner. We need to not succumb to that. How about our ears? Have I been listening to gossip, dirty jokes, slander? Proverbs 18.8. The words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down to a man's inmost parts. In other words, it will consume him or her. It will consume you. How about our mouths? What comes out of my mouth most of the time? Proverbs 13.3, He who guards his lips guards his life, but he who speaks rashly will come to ruin. Not hurt, ruin. How about our hands? Are you grasping the things of the world or are you using your hands to serve? Working for the Lord is what we should be doing. Ecclesiastes 9.10, whatever your hands find to do, do it with all your might. At your feet, are your feet taking you where you shouldn't be going or your souls surrendered to the Savior? Where are you going? What are you doing? The law of his God is in his heart. His feet do not slip. Psalms 37, 31. We have to be careful. It's not just one thing we need to control. It's the whole thing, which is why we must surrender it all to Christ. One pastor put it this way. When your lips become his, 
Your eyes become his, your ears, your hands, your feet, all become his. Do you know what's going to happen? You'll be his. It ultimately comes down to a choice, doesn't it? Yielding to the Lord must be decisive and it must be definitive. Are you ready to do that now? That's the question we need to ask. Are we ready to do that now? And finally this morning, verse 14. Let us know that our struggle with sin is not a hopeless matter because Christians are under the dominion of grace. We are under the dominion of grace, not law. Know that. Under the dominion of grace, not law. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Sin shall not be master over you, because believers are living in the grace of God, which in addition to bringing justification from sin, it also brings the sinner to the means of no longer sinning. And since believers stand in grace, sin has neither the right nor the power to enslave them. Sin can only rule when it is obeyed. And Christ has power to break that and to rule in the believer's life. Sin need no longer be obeyed. Jesus said that no one can serve two masters. Believers are like soldiers who have deserted the ranks of a rebel unit to rejoin their rightful leader. The orders of the rebel captain have no further authority over them. The Lord of the believer is Christ. We are empowered by grace and we are guaranteed the ultimate triumph. We have already got the victory. We have the victory. To be under grace instead of law is to be led by the Spirit. The law makes it known that the sin whets one's appetite for the forbidden. We know this. And it leads us to condemnation. But the law is not thereby the opponent of grace. It is not the opponent. But it's prelude. The law demands righteousness but cannot produce it. And those who try to fulfill it on their own become oppressed by its demands. You will fall to it. You will be consumed by it. Grace means that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It means that despite ourselves, God is for us. In other words, God is faithful and he frees us for himself. We are free. Getting, let me put this in example for you. Getting a jolt from 120 volts is more than just a little unpleasant. Those who have had it done before. It's a little more than just unpleasant. It could also be fatal. Studies have shown that it takes very little current to kill. Even a small amount of current can paralyze your muscles. And if you won't, and sometimes when you do that, you're not able to let go. Just a fraction more and your heart muscle can become paralyzed. The naive amateur repairman doesn't have sufficient respect for that lethal power of electricity. The amateur knows that 
a shock hurts, but he thinks he can always let go of the wire. It is the paralyzing power of even a small amount of electricity that makes it so dangerous. That is the same way with sin. You can just barely touch that sin, but boy, it can have a powerful effect. It can have a powerful effect. So it is that way with sin. People dabble with sin because they don't fear its power to paralyze the muscles of the soul. They dabble because they don't know its strength. And then it's too late. Even when people know a sinful behavior is hurting them and they want to quit, they can't let go. They can't let go. Sin is never safe. It is never safe. We have changed kingdoms to serve the king of kings who has set us free from the domination of sin. Unfortunately, too, many of us are not even aware that that freedom is ours. Harry Houdini made a name for himself by escaping from every imaginable confinement. Straitjackets, handcuffs, locked rooms. He loved to boast that no lock could hold him. And time and again, he would be in an impossible situation and he would be able to free himself. And it worked every time, except one. Except one. He entered a small room and the door was slammed shut. And once alone, he pulled a thin but strong piece of metal from his belt and began working on the lock. But something was wrong. No matter how hard Houdini worked, he couldn't unlock the lock. And for two hours, he applied skill and experience to that lock, but nothing happened. And finally, bathed in sweat and visibly frustrated, he fell against the door in total defeat. But when he fell against the door, it swung open because it had never been locked. It had never been locked. The only place the door was locked was in his mind. It was in his mind. Friends, Jesus has given us that freedom. The door has been unlocked. You have been set free to serve him. I don't care what struggle you're going through or what temptation you're wrestling with. It is powerless in light of the cross. When you finally have enough sin and you've had enough of it, when you at last have your fill of the venom that has infected you and you don't want to be under dominion any longer, you can be free at that moment. You can be free at that moment if you say, Lord, you told me that this old man was paralyzed on the cross. I believe it. Therefore, it is settled. It is settled. And with that spike of the cross and the hammer of his word, you nail it right there. You nail it right there and you walk away. You walk away. It's that simple. It is that simple. Ben's going to come for our time of benediction, but I want to offer you the opportunity this morning that if you do not have a relationship to Christ, that you don't know of his power of grace and how he's freed you from that sin, I pray this morning is the time that you come and you find out about that power. That you have that opportunity to come 
and commit your whole self to Christ, every part of us. And when we do that, we can be in his service fully and free from that sin and free from temptation. Ben. The act of uh, putting off the old man uh, and taking on our new identity in Christ is not something that happens in a spur of a moment. It's a process. It's a progression of daily making decisions. it's, it's a process of daily walking with our Lord and Savior. So this morning, would you stand with me as we close with this last song? And I am weak, but thou art strong. Jesus, keep me from all wrong. And I'll be satisfied as long as I walk. Let me walk close to Thee, just a closer walk with Thee. Grant it, Jesus, if You please. Walking close to Thee, let it be, dear Lord, let it be. Through this world of toils and snares, if I falter, Lord, who cares? And who will all my burdens share? None but Thee, dear Lord, none but Thee, just a closer walk with Thee. Grant it, Jesus, this my plea, daily walking close to Thee, let it be. Dear Lord, let it be. And when this feeble life is old, time for me will be no more. Guide me safely, gently, home to Thy kingdom shores, to Thy shores. Just a closer walk with Thee. Grant it, Jesus, this my plea. Daily walking close to Thee. Let it be, dear Lord, let it be. Just a closer walk with Thee. Grant it, Jesus, this my plea. Daily walking close to Thee. Let it be, dear Lord, let it be. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for the opportunity to be here today, to be in fellowship with one another, to know that we are freed from sin and alive in you. 
Lord, I pray that as those opportunities are presented to us this week, that we will allow you to work through us. Lord, thank you so much for your blessings and the blessings of your people. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great day in the Lord. The Bible says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.